5 in the morning, 21st of February, we woke up by sounds of bombs. And the first day, we constructed a bomb shelter with my son. I read an article in one of the broadsheet newspapers. It talked about how in the Ukrainian army, there was a lot of use of agile concepts. So I had 150 men and they were my kids because in the army you're actually responsible for their lives. When I kind of was on the border and my daughter cried and yeah, and she said, I hope we will see each other. From the city of Beaky Blinders, Birmingham, England, I would like to introduce you to Paddy Dandar. As the world becomes more automated and the robots take over, it's imperative that we build the right human skills for the future. So pull up a chair, grab a smoser or two, and make yourself very uncomfortable. So Dimitro, you're from Ukraine. Which area of Ukraine are you from? I'm from Kiev. It's the capital of Ukraine. It's a central area. Yeah. And I have been living there for quite a while, but I also have lived 15 years in the eastern part of Ukraine in Kupensk. So this is a kind of small town near the border of Russia and it has been occupied. So I actually had friends that I were under occupation. And now I have my friends that are kind of defending the Kupensk region. So yeah. Wow. So Dimitro. I'm just fascinated by what's going on in the world at the moment. And obviously Ukraine has been through a lot and there is so much still going on there. Your background is as an agile coach, I believe. And so could you just try and put me in your shoes? And I know that's really difficult, but from that moment at which you heard about the invasion of Ukraine, what was going through your mind? Where were you? How did that all happen for you? I remember my last business meeting, it was 23rd of February last year. It was a normal business meeting and I actually had a picture. I took it. It was a sale of a big bank where we helping with transformation. And after that, I headed to home, had a dinner with my family, two kids. And then we went to bed. And then at five in the morning, 21st of February, we woke up by sounds of bombs. So I just woke up and said, what was that? Oh no, it was just in my dreams. And then I went to bed again. And then it was in five seconds, it was the second explosion. So I'm living in the Kiev part where you can hear Browery and Borispil. There is a huge military base there and airport. So I could hear explo- explodes from there. And this is how it started for us. I was prepared. I knew that it probably will happen that Russia will go with full-scale invasion. I didn't Anyone expected that they will go to Kiev. I thought it would be east and south of Ukraine. Uh, so in half an hour, we were already in the car and heading the, in, into our house near the Kiev. So we managed to go before traffic jams and at 6.30, we were already in our house where we could observe how fight jets flying and fighting with Russian jets because my house is actually quite close to the military airbase. Yeah, so it was very big change. And then in the first day, we constructed a shelter, a bomb shelter with my son. And yeah, in the evening, we were already in the shelter. 
so in one day I changed from a nice business uh, meeting room to to a small shelter where we sat for our family, dog, cat. Also, I evacuated like five families from Kiev to, to our place. Yeah. So it was some, sometimes it was like 10, 15 people sitting in the shelter waiting while, yeah, sound of bombs will disappear and then we could go back to the house. Yeah. So it was a huge, quick change, not only for me, but for everyone. I mean, again, I can't even imagine what must have been going through your mind, but you've got a family, you've got, you mentioned a son. Like what was going through your mind at that moment? Was it just you being on autopilot to say, hey, this is what we now need to do? What was going through your head at that point? Yeah, I think in such situation, you have only safety in mind and not for yourself, but for your family, especially for kids. And it was good that I prepared my house. So I bought food for two months. I had another car, been with fully loaded with gas in the house, etc. So I knew kind of, I prepared myself what I need to do. I need to be in the house, not in the city because yeah, it's, it's the first rule. If the war starts, you should get out from the big cities because you might not have water supply, electricity, bridges might be blown up and then you cannot go from one side. There is a huge river in Kiev, Dnipro, and we are on the left bank, which is and on Russia's side, so if they would blow bridges and we would not be able to go to kind of Western part. Yeah, so it was more like thinking about safety of the family. And we were in the house for 10 days. And then at some point I realized that we, we started to see what is happening in Bucha, European, in the media. And I realized that the same might happen to my house. We are just on the south of Kiev. And there was a moment where Russian could kind of kept in Sokol, Kiev, and then I would not be able to get out. So I decided in, in 10 days, on 4th of March, I decided that I will take my family and go to the west of Ukraine, to Lviv region. Yeah. So everything what you do is uh, safety in principle. Yeah. So you are just back to this Maslow pyramid into the lowest level, safety. Yes. And you don't think on any other. Like I had business meetings on the first day, etc. Of course, I cancelled everything. I, yeah, I didn't care to to go to them. Even I had internet, etc. So I was focusing on the safety of my family and also help started to help a few other families to go out from the Kiev to our house, and then they can could also tra- travel from our house to the western part of Ukraine. And so, when you traveled west, you got your family to safety, then. Were you going to have to stay behind? And I guess there was a big call from the government for all the men to be enlisted into the army. Like, was that then the thing you had to do next? Yeah. So when I came to West, then you need to register that you have, you are in a new place now. So I went to like a civil organization where they register you in this village. I wasn't, I wasn't in the Lviv. I was in a small village near the Lviv. And then they gave me a paper, like a notice to the military office. So I went straight away to the military office, this paper. I thought that they would just maybe take some information about me, put it me in the list, and then call me when they need me. But they enlisted me in just in two minutes. So yeah, when I came to the office, they said, oh, you just go on, kind of, you can skip it. But I said, I'm an officer in reserve. And they said, oh, you are officer in reserve. Okay. Go to the second floor, 
cabinet number 10. Okay, I came two minutes and they said, how many days you need in order to sort out your things with family? Because you, it was Monday and they said on Tuesday, on Tuesday, you should be with your star, with your like, clothes, etc. here and you will go somewhere. We don't know where. And yeah, so it was very fast. And then I called my friend, Michael in Denmark. Can you be in the, on the border with Ukraine in two days? I said, yeah, sure. So he came by his car, took my family. Yeah. And yeah, at that point, uh, I didn't know whether I will see them or not, because I didn't know where I will go in the army, etc. So at that point, I realized how family is actually important and how we very often bothered and nervous about tiny things and we shouldn't. And this is what changed me. That life moment and also army is I'm yeah, I'm much less nervous about stuff and such for example for this podcast or I don't know, speaking at the conference or talking to a sales company, I just realized that it's just nothing so more important is yeah, your family, your, yeah. I was going to say, when we kicked off the podcast, I was probably more nervous than you. You were like cool as a cucumber and I was like <laughs> rushing around. So uh, yeah, I can certainly see that coming through. And Dimitro, you mentioned you have a son. How old is your son? Yeah, actually I have son and daughter. Right. Son is 16 years old and daughter 11 years old. And yeah, so... My family is in Denmark and I actually joined them. So in December, so I have family matters. Actually, I didn't know about this. I realized it accidentally in September that I could quit from the army. So it took two months to quit. And then in November, I actually quit from the army after eight months service. Uh, and then I managed using the same family matters to get out from Ukraine and so I rejoined with my family in December and I'm super happy now that I am together with them, with my son and my daughter. And they are also happy. And also dog with us. So they took dog in March. Yeah. So. Oh, fantastic. That's amazing. I mean, I'm so glad and so happy you're in a much better place now and things have really turned for you and your family. But I, as a parent myself, I can't even imagine having to say goodbye to them. And like you said, not knowing if or when you'd be able to see them again. I mean, how was that without it kind of bringing back too many of those bad memories? Like, how did you deal with that? Yeah, I remember uh, when it was March 8th, when I kind of was on the border and my daughter cried and yeah, and she said, I hope we will see each other. So even daughter realized that <clears throat> this might be the last moment. So she said, I hope, yes, that we will see each other. And this is where I realized, yeah, this is what is the most important in life. And I just to be, I just to make sure that I am returned back and I see them. So it was difficult. And then I managed actually to be back in December 13th, which is birthday of my daughter. So when she came from, she knew that I will be there, but it was nice coincidence when she back from school with my wife we made a lot of balloons and yes so she was very happy it was a dozen gift that I, I was back to them oh fantastic and during those eight months whilst you were away in the army did you have regular contact with them were you able to call each other yeah so i was lucky i was put into the west part of ukraine to serve 
So I was in guarding brigade. So we guard our infrastructure objects on, in the West part. So <clears throat> I wasn't on front line, yes, but I didn't choose it. You never know. So it was just at that time when they dropped me, they needed, they organized this new guardian brigade. And it means when I was on the West, it means that I had a chance to talk on the cell phone with my wife, with kids, etc. It was actually difficult to talk over the phone with them because quite often they kind of express in what the problems they have. And you would like to help them and what you can do, you only can help by work, but you would like to hug, you would like to, I don't know, to be together. So it was actually not easy. Yeah. But I was lucky that I was in the Western part. And yeah. And when you were on duty, what sort of things were you having to do? And can you give us any examples of where things got really scary for you? Yeah. So I became better lead. So I had 150 men that I was like, you can say a father and they were my kids because in the army, you're actually responsible for their lives, etc. And even we were on the West, we still were fully armed and uh, almost all of them were new in, in the service in, in the army. Like me, I had like two years education way years back in university but i don't remember anything so yeah the scary moment were of course it's like maybe not scary but challenging moments is to organize everything so we can fulfill our missions and our tasks of guarding critical infrastructure so they cannot be compromised by yeah by different acts or sharing information that should not be shared etc so it was a lot of working with, uh, with soldiers that are new to this and raising their competence, raising my competence as an officer, but raising their competence as well. So this was my one of the biggest focuses to help to organize quite a big number of trainings for them because country couldn't. So we suddenly got 600 thousands new soldiers and officers that not really served before. Country couldn't. Uh, organized training for all of them and I didn't have this illusion so I started to find ex-soldiers veterans with a great knowledge and I organized a training base like a training camp where first from my battery soldiers trained then from a battalion from then from the whole brigade came and yeah it was hundreds of soldiers and officers that trained on different topics and this helped we raise the competence. This helped them to feel more secure. It helped me to feel more secure. Yeah. And to be better in, in fulfilling the mission and our tasks. Yeah. But it, it yeah. Also, you had, you, you didn't choose the people that you are serving with. Yeah. So I got 150 men. This is your man. And some of them are not really good men and you need somehow to deal with them. And that they also listen to you and they recognize you as a leader, as an officer, not by title, but also by kind of following you. And this was difficult. So some of them were really tough guys with a tough life before. Yeah. How did you get them on side? I mean, 150 is a lot of people to try and lead and influence. What kind of approaches did you use? So the default style in, uh, in, you can say it, 
it was default style in Ukrainian army, especially after Soviet Union time, is a command and control. And this is what I was told to do by some of my higher rank officers. You need to control everything. You need to give, not don't be so be hard, give clear commands, etc. I knew that I cannot do this with 150 men. I was then a delivery manager for 120 people and I knew that it's not working there. It will not work here. Yes. And I, and it and also my units were, they were geographically distributed. I cannot see them all. It, I needed to travel like 120 km in order to get through all of the units. So I started to work on enabling leadership on every level. So if I am on better level, then I have a platoons, which is 30 people each five platoons. And then I have squads, which is around 10 people each, uh, like scrum team. And then, yeah, I don't know if you take safe analogy, then like a release train. Um, yeah, or less it's requirements area. So I started to enable leadership on squads level and on platoon level. And I did it via three mechanisms. The first mechanism is providing clarity. So they know what I know, sharing the information. So we created uh, information radiators that were accessible to everybody in the battery. Uh, like information that they will know that it's not just top secret you can share and they will know in any case. Also, we had information refrigerators, like a lot of which was accessible only to platoon leads and me, which helped us to quickly do different reports because every day you ask, okay, what is the amount of armor you have? How many helmets? What about clothes, etc. And quite often it's the same information, different formats. And we spent quite a lot of time in the beginning on this, but after that we started, okay, let's have this information refrigerators with all type of information we know about each shoulder, about each unit, each location, etc. And this helped, um, yeah, and to speed up it. So providing clarity was first mechanism. So soldiers, they knew what we are going to work on, kind of what is team for offense, what is in case of attack from this direction, who should be where on each position, etc. So trying to provide them clarity. Second thing is psychological safety to extent possible. I tried to create this environment and we had accidents where it was like not on purpose, someone sh- shout, shoot, yes, luckily not to another person, but like, I don't know, in the ground, etc. This is, of course, not good. And instead of screaming and saying, oh, what you did is stupid, you should never do this, etc., we tried to, in this unit, we gather it and we analyzed, okay, why it happened. What was the consequences of steps that lead to this? Because, And then we realized that after we openly discussed it, we realized that, oh, actually, any soldier can do the same because the procedure we have is still from Soviet Union and it's quite cumbersome. So we just made this procedure much smaller. It's not kind of how it should be officially, but it was much better in terms of not happening these mistakes again. And they see that, oh, okay, it's not just that we need to work by book. We can just suggest something that, and then we will just change it because it makes more sense. Yeah. So worked on, uh, yeah, on psychological safety environment. And yeah. And the thought mechanism was, is what I, what I talked about raising competence. Because if you would like to delegate and you need to raise competence so people 
have confidence in accepting the responsibility. Yeah. So I think this is what I tried to do in my battery. The background that you have with your agile background and you know some of your experiences from managing large teams, you mentioned 120 people in your delivery team. I mean, I'm thinking, what's harder? Is it people that work in tech or in the army could be interesting? Mm. But how did those experiences help you in some of these situations? And if you hadn't had those experiences before, do you think you would have been any better or worse? Before we continue, here's a quick word about the sponsors of this show. So your execs have decided to go through a big transformation to change your ways of working. They've restructured the teams, invested in new tools and techniques, but there's one small problem. How do we measure our improvement consistently across the organization without falling into the trap of relying on what we call vanity metrics? Yup, those KPIs that look great on paper, but just aren't very useful. I want to introduce you to Comparative Agility. It's the world's largest continuous improvement platform. They've gathered over 4 million data points from thousands of organizations so that you can benchmark your maturity against the world index or compare yourself to your industry. They have a wide range of different surveys covering topics such as business agility, psychological safety, DevOps, employee engagement, and many more. What makes these surveys so valuable is that they've been written by respected thought leaders who are experts in their field, such as Mike Cohen from the world of Agile, all the way through to Dr. Amy Edmondson. So whether you're a coach, team manager, or a transformational leader, be sure to check out Comparative Agility to help implement a culture of continuous improvement. Best of all, you can test drive the platform completely free. To find out more, check out the link in the show notes. Now, let's get back to the episode. Yeah, it's a great question. I think in the army, it is harder. And one of the reasons why it's harder, because you do not choose the people and you cannot fire them. So if you don't like a person, let's say you have a very toxic person or just completely off with your values and principles, it's just part of your team. You just need to work in with this person. That is why it is harder. In when it's in civil life, in my like delivery team, when I had 120 people, if you see it's toxic person, toxic person, you are trying to develop, improve, but it's not, then you just let it go. Yes. So in this sense, it's difficult. Of course, you never know what will happen tomorrow. So it could be that you would get a call and say, "Okay, guys, tomorrow we are." heading somewhere on the east or south, etc. So you never know. So in the army, it was harder. And responsibility, of course, is higher higher because you are kind of responsible for the well-being and lives of each soul. And of course, the experience that I had helped me a lot. It would be much difficult for me if I wouldn't have the previous experience. I had a, I had a confidence that I can deal with 150 people because I had 120. I had a understanding of how organize the more like leadership on every level how to delegate more <clears throat> and also being i'm such a person where i trust a lot so you should be really tried to break my trust i always go with trust to people uh, that they are doing the best intention etc and this is, was my 
approach to my uh, platoon leads, to surgeons, to soldiers. Of course, some of them broke the trust over time, but in majority cases, it, it was okay. And when the, they feel that I trust them, they also have a bigger responsibility and they have, they don't want to screw up because they know, oh, my better lead is trusting me. He thinks that I can do it and yeah, etc. So yeah, it helped me a lot. I had in civil life as a agile coach, delivery manager, working with a lot of teams and the kind of embracing more servant leadership concept and situational leadership. I am also type of person more like a servant leader and in the army, it's not really working sometimes. So this is where, what I developed in the army, a different type of leadership. So sometimes I had to be quite autocratic because no time to discuss, there were no time to hear complaints, etc. We just, guys, we just need to do it. This is how it is. So it was a developing opportunity for me, not being always a servant leader, but jump into other types depending on the circumstances. And I mean, it's fascinating you're talking there about how those skills really help because often we as agileists read books and we get inspired and we think that sounds great. But in practice, it's sometimes difficult to see those principles working. And I guess hearing from you in how you've applied those in such a real world situation, I don't think it can get any more extreme than that. It's like life or death situations and you've got 150 people that you're trusting your life with and they're trusting you. To hear that those sort of concepts have really helped is amazing. And I think that's, for me, something really valuable that I'm taking away from this conversation because I hear a lot of thought leaders that do these big presentations at conferences and talk about how to be a better leader, we need to do X, Y, Z. But I don't think they've ever been in that sort of situation. So it doesn't always have that credibility. And one more thing that I really help is the Canadian framework. And I would like to send to Dave Snowden for introducing it and making it. Because when I was, when I just started on this sorting base where we created this Guardian Brigade, it was chaos. And it was chaos not only in our place, it was chaos in Ukraine. Never, no one knew whether Q will be captured, etc. And I knew how to act in chaos. Yes, you shouldn't care about big plans, etc. You should be really accepting that the plans will change, do the thing, and then move on. So this also helped a lot. And then also, as we get more knowledge, then I moved to complex environment where we could Okay, where well, we could start to experiment and move some of the things into more like a good practices, like with training base, with the delegating of some of the things to the soldiers, the surgeons, etc. So, and yeah, and such concepts they really help. So you can apply what we know as agile coaches in in different situations in life, in like such situation as army, etc. Yeah, so it's not only business business related. I read an article in one of the broadsheet newspapers here in the UK, and it talked about how in the Ukrainian army, there was a lot of use of agile concepts. And at first I looked at it and I was like, I don't believe it. Like, is this someone that's just trying to promote agile? <laughs> so I, I was really fascinated to, to like hear from someone who's been there. 
is this the case? Were other people doing similar things to what you were doing? Were some of your friends who were also from an agile background, like what were some of their experiences and stories? Yeah, I think so. And one of the reasons for this is that um, Ukrainian army now is not a professional army in the sense that it's all professional soldiers and officers. A lot of people from different backgrounds, from IT, from building, from, I don't know, leadership, etc., etc., they are now in the army. And they bring a lot of experience. And of course, you need, if you would like to get outcomes and embrace this experience, you need to listen to them. You need to be open to change things and not do it as it says in the book, because in the army, it's quite strict that you need to follow the books, etc. And I think in Ukraine, due to the change of the people in the army, we are moving away kind of that, oh, you need to follow the books. That is why there are a lot of innovations coming. Like with, uh, I don't know, drones chasing uh, tanks and attacking them or the software written by guys that are helping to have a better navigation of artillery and a lot of this stuff. So, and I think we, uh, we became much more open-minded uh, army. It's not fixed mindset, how it was taught in the academy. This open-minded because you have a lot of different background and we also, our army is moving in understanding that sergeant position, like a scrum master, a leader of the small unit is the most important one. And now in Ukraine army, we, as like in NATO, we are building a second stream of career because previously it was just officers only. Yes. And sergeants were only on the team level. Now in Ukraine army, we also have surgeons that can be on any level up to the highest near the president. Yes. So this is also changing, changing the way Ukrainian army is, is working now. And there is a big focus on small units. Yes. So even I had 150 men, you can, I had a five units distributed and each of them was distributed into three smaller units. And the goal is to make each the small unit autonomous. And this is what you can say also close to agile, like a self-organization. Yes. Where you have a great team in a small unit, not like in, in the whole battery. And this is what, this is the difference, like from Russian army, for example, you might remember how they tried to attack Kiev. It was like 50 km a line of tanks and machines going. It's just insane. <laughs> So, yeah. I remember those pictures. They were showing those satellite pictures of this just huge convoy, wasn't there? And yeah, a lot of people yeah. were saying, why haven't they not bombed them? Like, they're just letting them carry on. Yeah, yeah. They, we, we bombed them afterwards. afterwards. <laughs> yeah, so, so yeah. And this is where Ukrainian army is changing now. So I think, yeah, it's becoming more and more in general sense of it's working on with self-organized teams, focus on, like, surgeons, the leaders of the smaller units, we understand this is the basis of the army, open for a lot of innovations. There are a lot of news where kind of Ukrainian soldiers came up with some such idea, which I don't know, cost like one, two thousand US dollars compared with the US army spending millions in order to kind of make a solution. Yeah. So I think it's becoming more general. I was going to share a quick story of when I was at a previous organization. I was at a Deutsche Bank, big global bank, and I was working with a team from Luxoft based in Kiev. And 
I have to say, Dimitra, to this day, and I've been doing Agile since probably about 2003, like I've been working with lots of software teams, offshore, onshore, everywhere. Out of all the teams I've ever worked with, I'm not just saying this for this episode, but they were probably like the best team I've ever worked with. They were honestly so proactive. I mean, I'll tell you how I ended up with that team. I had literally joined the company and my management asked me to become product owner for about three different products. I had no idea about investment banking. I had come from a background of telecommunications. And so I remember coming on my very first sort of planning call with the team and they were like, so Mr. Product Owner, well, what's your sort of priorities for the next sprint? Dude, I had no idea. I didn't even know what the features meant because I had inherited this backlog. And but I'd worked for a consultancy beforehand. So I used a little bit of that skill set. And I was like, well, if you were in my situation, what would you prioritize? And so I think the team very quickly found out and sussed me out that he doesn't know what he's talking about. So they would have to almost, you know, kind of fill that void for a while. But as soon as I got up to speed with things, honestly, they were just so committed and we just used to have such a great time. Another funny story, a couple of my team, they came over to London whilst I was in London and they were, we were standing in the middle of the office and they went, Paddy, we're so happy to see you. And I was like, I'm so happy to see you guys. And they said, we brought you a present. I was like, oh, that's so cool. And they pulled out a bottle of vodka, right, in the middle of the office. And all of my other colleagues, my management were all like looking and, you know, alcohol was not permitted on the premises. So I was like, Trying to, <laughs> try to quickly hide it, going, yeah, oh, that's so awesome. Let's put it back in the bag, guys. <laughs> but it was just, it was amazing, the relationship that we built. And yeah, in terms of innovation, I mean, that's what sparked that conversation in my head was they would just try things, like things that I had never thought of. And they'd just present it to me and go, hey, we've been like trying some stuff out. What do you think of this? And it was just amazing. I was like, wow, I didn't even ask them to do some of this stuff, but but they really kind of just went above and beyond. So yeah, really great memories. Yeah. I'm glad that you have such experience with the Ukrainian teams. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Usually we are hardworking and very committed and yeah, you're right. Yeah. We would like to try out things, how it goes, sometimes break the rules and see if it's working. So yeah. Amazing. And I think every movement needs great leadership, and we've touched upon leadership. I'd love to know your view on President Zelensky, because we see a lot on the media about him. And I remember when the conflict first started, there was a lot of talk about how his background was as an actor, and he wasn't really fit for the role, and how on earth is he leading this ginormous country through this conflict? What are some of your observations of his style, his approach, and why have people really brought into his vision? Yeah, I should start with that. I didn't vote for him. <laughs> oh, wow. Exactly. As you say, kind of how a comedian can be president. Yes. An actor. Oh, it, it's nonsense. But I, we are super lucky that he became our president. And I think what he's strong, he's strong in is beliefs in fairness. He has clear principles that everybody understands. So he doesn't play politics. And this is what unites the nation. This is what also unites other countries because they understand it's simple. 
we are defending our freedom. We are not going to negotiate to give some our lands, etc. after tens, not tens, but probably hundreds of thousands of people were already killed, civilians and, and uh, military. Yeah. So I think kind of his, this like a kid approach to things. Yeah, this is black, this is white. There is no gray in this. And I think this is simple to ev- for everybody to understand. This is simple for media to take instead of having a professional politician on, on, on his position and having some abstract, difficult to understand talks, fluffy, abstract, and then had some, I don't know, private talks and see some actions after that. So all is simple, values and understandable. We would like to defend our freedom. We don't want to give our land to the aggressor. We would like to get back all our people that were captured, etc., etc. So it's his just, this is black, this is white. And I think this is what. So like a principle leadership, you know, like on these principles, on these values, we are leading based on this. Oh, that's great to hear. And again, fascinating for an outsider like me to hear from someone who's come from the conflict and really has had to buy into that vision. So we're running out of time, Dimitro, but I'd love to give you some of the last words in terms of what would be some of your big messages for people who are out there? I mean, especially the people who are outside of Ukraine and we live our daily lives thinking we've got all these other challenges and, oh my God, the cost of living is going up and these are real problems. But I always think, you know, comparison can be the bandit of happiness sometimes. So when you compare yourself to others that are doing better than you, then you feel more unhappy. But I think in this case, we can flip that around and actually say, look, comparison can give you even more happiness. Like you should be grateful for what you have. And I'd love to hear some of your kind of big lessons. And I know before we kicked off, you were talking about empathy being really high on your Mm. agenda, about things that you really value. And also I'd love to hear about displacement as well, because you mentioned about many of the people from Ukraine have had to leave their homes. So I just want to give you the last word on some of those things. So yeah, understand that it's difficult times now with prices goes go up. Also it's mad what is happening in Turkey, of course, with earthquakes. It's another big tragedy. Um but I think this is what world if you take the prices, yes, this is what world is kind of paying for freedom for democracy. And believe Ukraine pays much more. We pay the best. I was the best man and woman died now in the fight for freedom. And yeah, and if we do not stop this aggression war in Ukraine, then it will come to other places from Russia and it will come in other places from other countries that they will see, oh, this is how we can do it. And uh, yeah, and what I have learned and what I think everybody should be thinking of is less worry about details, I don't know, some unimportant things, and more enjoy your life, your family, thinking how to make your people, if you are a leader, better, your family happier. Yeah, and of course, I wish that everybody supports Ukraine until we win, because this is what all Ukrainians do now. They, in in some or other ways they are supporting army or 
yeah, do some humanitarian, like, yeah, like I am now working hard in order to collect for drones, for thermal vision, for sniper visions, for tablets, for everything, yes, to give different workshops, speaking on conferences, and all money goes to the donation. And it's all what, like, a lot of, almost all Ukrainians do now. Yeah, and in terms of empathy, yeah, I think this is what kind of I, I used in the army. I used as a job coach. I treat every person as a person and not just the unit. And this is what helps actually to be happier for yourself, make people happier, greater, etc. So, yeah, always put person on the first plan. The same for companies. We quite often say, oh, people is the foundation. This is what is the most important. But then our actions not saying this. Even our words not saying this. Because when I'm coming to some company and they say, oh, resources, okay, guys, is it really resources? If you value people, then just name them people, not resources. Amazing. Dimitro, it's been an honor having you on the podcast. I've certainly learned so much more and really do appreciate you sharing your story because it's it's amazing story and i'm so glad you're safe and well and you're back with your family so thank you yeah thank you paddy for inviting me and have a great day